0: This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, Session 361, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah huh uh You'll be swinging. Uh-huh. All right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on
1: Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential
0: voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it's Daniel here. I want to welcome you back to another episode of The Daniel Glass Show here on Drummer's Resource. And today I'm going to try something new. And I definitely would love to get your feedback on this. I'm going to try... A feature that I will do every so number of episodes called Favorite Five. And the idea is to sit down with uh, a drummer, but maybe we'll do it with other types of folks other than just drummers. We'll sit down and and talk to them about sort of their five favorite records, five favorite songs, five favorite drummers uh, who had. Uh, an impact on them. And all the people that I would involve with this are people that I'm not only friends with, but uh, that um, have an opinion, have have some interesting thoughts to say, have been around, have some history. Uh, and today's uh, first you know victim, I guess you could say, of the favorite five series is Eric Singer. Most people know Eric, of course, from his work with Kiss, a band which he has been in for many, many years now he also has played with a lot of other terrific musicians over the years, Alice Cooper, Gary Moore, the list goes on and on. Uh, but rather than just doing a sort of a standard interview, how'd you get started? When'd you first pick up the sticks? You know, all of that sort of stuff. Um, I, I, I wanted to talk to Eric about his, Uh, upbringing and his early influences and things that have have really marked his playing. And I think this is an interesting way to talk about, um, have a conversation with a drummer. So if you'll forgive me, it really is a conversation and we really roam into a lot of interesting uh, highways and byways and cover a, a very broad swath of music and i hope that this is something that's interesting and entertaining it's somewhat non-linear we, but we use sort of the five favorites uh the favorite five as it were as as a starting point so uh as i mentioned please do get back to me with your feedback and um, i hope that you enjoy the conversation so without further ado it's eric singer on the daniel glass show All right, I'm here with the great Eric Singer, and uh, Eric, how you doing today, man?
1: I'm great, Daniel. Thanks for uh, reaching out to me.
0: Yeah. You know, initially or ideally, this, this is called Favorite Five. We're sort of going to try to talk about five influential, uh, you know, drummers uh, that have been impactful on you and your career, on your experiences. But um, obviously, I don't want you to feel or I don't I, I don't want our listeners to think there are only five, of course.
1: Yeah, because I, I, in all honesty, I'm actually influenced by um, by everybody. I mean, you know, like if I go watch you play, I'm gonna go. Oh, okay. Um, It could be a simple thing of like, wow, I like the color of his drum kit, or, or I like the way he sets up. I like the angle of his cymbals, and I like his, or like his, uh, you know, the physicality of the way a person plays. Sometimes there's all those little different things you become. uh, They leave indelible impressions. And many times you find out later down the road that you've picked up tips. And it really is from everybody. I, I imagine when you were younger, you might have seen some, you know, I saw some local drummers just in the city of Cleveland. And when I think back, some of those people really um, became influential. I didn't maybe recognize it initially, but they definitely become part of your bag of tricks, if you will. And it can be not just the physical drumming aspects. It can be, their the way their drum kit looked the way they set up it could be simple things
0: yeah no that's it makes sense and obviously i i feel the same way i'm sure most people listening it's like yeah absolutely you know you grab you grab from everything and everyone um before we get into the sort of the five drummers i just want to sort of um maybe get people up to speed on you know you grew up in cleveland and your your background is is a is a little bit um, it's not what you think when you think of Eric Singer who plays with Kiss you know or who played with a lot of these great rock artists you you uh, you have more of a diverse background so just talk for a couple minutes about that because I think it's really interesting
1: well it, it is very different I, it's almost like I'm two different persona in a way it's like because my real name is Mensinger so when i grew up in cleveland i was always known eric mensinger i changed my name to just or shortened it to singer when i moved to la it was almost like this is like my new uh not alter ego but my new uh opportunity and lease on life so uh, but my dad was a band leader and he went by singer his name was johnny singer and he had a he was a society band leader uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, and um, for people that don't know, society band leader, uh, society music's basically you play almost like the American songbook, Cole Porter, all that type of stuff, um, show tunes, everything like that. And usually, you play for high society, you know, people that are affluent, you know, country clubs and their debutante parties and weddings and affluent or high income type people, that crowd, if you will. And my dad actually started working out of New York for Meyer Davis. Meyer Davis was a famous booking agent, had many bands in the New York society crowd. And uh, my dad he put my dad on the SS United States and SS America uh, ocean liners going across from New York to London, over to Paris and back. So my dad did that. I think he told me he did 48 round trips across the Atlantic, which is wow. crazy. But and he met, you know, every kind of movie star and every celebrity would be on those ocean liners. So he had some great stories. And uh, so my dad's background was, he started off as a in big bands when he was younger. He was in a band with Perry Como. And Perry Como's first gig, he was in, a, was the singer. And my dad played violin as well as saxophone. And that was in 1935. And they were in a band called wow. Freddie Carlone, Freddie Carlone, big band out of Cleveland. Now, mind you, in the old days, there was no rock and roll. There was no anything like that. It was like, if you played in a band, you played in a big band right, or a combo. And then I think in, I guess, jazz, uh, more like bebop and jazz kind of formed more than, I guess, you would know better because you're the authority on it, but more so into the 50s, into the 60s, and then rock and rolls. My dad told me he saw the changing of the guard, if you will. He said but I'd go into the music stores in England, he said all of a sudden I'd notice that there weren't, like reeds and woodwind instruments hanging up and were also <laughs> all these electric guitars yeah he literally saw the changing of the guard before his own eyes so i remember him telling me that and so anyways my dad's first gig was with perry como and he told me they were both like i don't know 21 years old or something perry was from erie pennsylvania or pennsylvania area and um so He started off, and that was my background. My dad, after he he started having a family, decided to stay in Cleveland where he he was born in uh, Europe. He was uh, from – he was German but from uh, Uh Austria-Hungary. The family, they moved over here when my dad was 12 to Cleveland and then all their family as well. And um, so he – Played violin from a young age. And obviously all he ever did, he was a musician his whole life. So, um, mm. Which is, I think, pretty uh, amazing when you think about it. A lot of musicians from those eras had to have regular day jobs. And they ended up working as musicians. almost I don't like to use the word part-time, but out of necessity, they had to have two jobs.
0: Especially when they got families and stuff.
1: Exactly. But my dad made a living as a band leader. And so I grew up in a household of music. My mother was a singer and also played violin. So all of us kids i had two brothers and a sister we all played instruments and my family was active in little theater community theater and stuff and my dad was would go to the cleveland orchestra he had season tickets forever he'd go every thursday to the severance hall in cleveland and go watch the cleveland orchestra So I was exposed to a lot of that style of music, and my dad would take me to see big bands all the time when I was younger, you know, Buddy Rich, Louis Bellson, you know, Maynard Ferguson, Stan Kenton, uh, Tom Basie, you name it, I saw all that stuff. And I'm so glad I was exposed to that because me liking drums, what is is the, I don't want to say the main function, but one of the great things about a big band, the drummer is really the driving force, and he was always kind of like, many times the star featured a part of a big band. Um, and so I took a lot, I tried to take, I should say a lot of that influence and apply it to how I would play rock, hard rock. You know, I always figured like I'd have to drive the band. That's, you know, uh, my job. So I took that mindset and basically did it in a, in, in a, or tried to in a hard rock thing. And, uh, you know, it's funny. One time, uh, I think of 1989, I was playing a show with Paul Stanley on a solo tour. And Tony Thompson, who's now not with us anymore, but. She can now
0: Rogers Band and all of those exactly. great hits. Yeah.
1: yeah and t- Tony came to the gig. And after the show, uh, he was in a band called Crown of Thorns at the time. And Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley were uh, managing, I think, maybe even producing their record. And um, Tony came up to me. And said I remember I'll never forget this cuz he said to me he goes he goes you know you kind of goes you're like playing or you're like a different kind of hard rock drummer he goes you play like a big band drummer playing hard rock so he totally got it and picked up on what I was trying to do um so obviously he must have had some background to kind of pick up on my approach
0: that's cool well on on that note eric um the first drummer that you mentioned on your list of five is uh is Buddy Rich. And so, you know, this is right in keeping obviously with what we're talking about. Um if you wanna, you know, give us some specifics why why Buddy Rich in particular, I mean, obviously Buddy Rich influences all of us, but uh and and everybody who every drummer who sees Buddy Rich is is wowed and impressed. But what what is it in, in particular about Buddy Rich that for you really resonated?
1: Well, obviously Buddy's like you know he's a one of a kind. I mean, I don't think we're going to ever see a drummer with that type of hand uh, snare drum technique chops like he has. There's a lot of guys that are obviously phenomenal. I mean, you know, when I think of some of the modern, I mean, like I think Vinnie Colaiuta is insane. Um, I was just watching some uh, stuff the other night on YouTube from uh, from uh, Herbie Hancock. Um, I saw him this past summer, yeah. or I should say last summer now, and uh, but. Every time I watch Vinny, he kind of has that effect on me like Buddy Rich does, where I kind of, I mean, I'm sitting at home and I'm like, you know, you're kidding me.
0: Yeah. What I dig about both Vinny and Buddy is that it, it at how unrehearsed it sounds. It just sounds like stuff's flowing out of them. Whereas with a lot of great drummers who have a lot of chops, it sounds, you could tell the hours they put in the practice room. You know, nothing, nothing against that. But there's something about both those guys you mentioned that is, it's just almost, it's like they're touched in some way. They're just accessing something, you know, that's like not about practicing.
1: What you just said, touched is perfect. They're like savants to me. They're, they are touched. They're, they have this special gift from God or whatever you believe, but they have some special gift that's that just flows through them and it's unique. Uh, I always thought Vinny's like a modern day Buddy Rich, but to me, the thing I always loved about Buddy Rich, but he wasn't just about like all this blazing chops. But he was unbelievably impeccable time. He, I mean, he has all the characteristics of what I think a drummer should have. You know, he's got the power; he can drive a band. He's flawless with his technique, flawless timing, but it's not like mechanical. It's it's just he's got great time. His inner clock, as I call it, is so on the money. It's like he's digital or courts in rega- regards to the accuracy. Um, but yeah. he's also was so musical. I mean, if you ever hear him play, uh there's a great, I think it's, is it a Zoot Sims? I think it's a Zoot Sims record, like a quartet and Buddy's playing on it. And yeah. I mean, if I didn't tell you it was Buddy Rich, most people probably wouldn't know it because he plays just so musical. So in the background, like supportive for the music, for the song. So he knew how to play what, you know, I think a lot of people are used to watching him just do a blazing solo, and seeing him with his own band. And of course, it's called the Buddy Rich band. So who's going to be featured? Buddy Rich. But when he was a an yeah. accompaniment or supportive musician, uh, he was so musical and played always for the music, for the song. His dynamics and taste were just. I mean, to me, he's like like the perfect drummer. I always thought. That.
0: I think people forget uh, that. You know, he didn't create that that last big band until 1964. He'd already been a professional musician for like you know 40 years plus at that point.
1: Right, with Harry James and all.
0: Yeah, with 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 Harry James and and uh, and Tommy Dorsey before that. And, you know, he was a sideman in those situations and was called upon to play, I'm sure, plenty of ballads. And people say, oh, Buddy Rich, you know, hated ballads and he never played ballads. Well, by the time he got to starting his own band, it's like, well, we're going to play what I want to play. But, you know, if you listen to a tune like Channel One Suite, there's a beautiful ballad section in the middle of it. It's like a big uh, a big saxophone feature and he, and he plays it beautifully. And I've heard other stories where he would sit in, say, with the Count Basie band later on. And just lay down the most laid back, super hip shuffle and just sit there and just, you know, it wasn't about him. It was about him being a great drummer. So, yeah, I agree.
1: And I think Vinny, to me, has the same qualities in all those categories. He can play anything and does it musically. I mean, he can play so crazy outside. It's like um, I I told you I was watching this video from I think it was from 2014 and they were doing an old uh, Headhunters tune. I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's a it's a famous one has a really cool beat mike clark i think played on the original that particular track who's also
0: oh yeah actual it might be actual proof is that what you're thinking of it, from the album thrust yeah 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 that's fantastic
1: I mean, it's a really cool groove but Vinny is taking it so outside that you're almost like where in the hell is one and he always knows where one is his clock his internal clock and, yeah. and that's why you're right he's absolutely has to be just channeling some special gift because there's no way that stuff's rehearsed. It's just flowing.
0: Yeah. My favorite outside Vinny tune is from uh, the, the Frank Zapp album, shut up and play your guitar. And the opening track is called five, five, five. And it's l- just, it's in five, but it's like one, do one, do the one, do one, do the one, one, do you know, it's that fast. And from about the opening lick, I always try to count along to the tune, and I usually last about 15 seconds, and then I'm, I'm completely lost for the rest of the song. Like, I have no idea what one is at all. Yeah. And I actually met a guy who said, and not to divert from our conversation, but I met a guy who's been touring with uh, Dweezil doing the Zappa Play Zappa stuff. Uh, he's, a, he's an L.A. guy. Shoot, can't remember his name right now. But um, we had a great conversation at NAMM this year, and he said the trick to that tune... Was it
1: Joe Travers?
0: It's not Joe Travers. Uh, Oh, shoot. Uh, anyway, he was, he was saying that, um, the way that, the way that you play that song or the way that Vinny did was that whoever's actually playing the lick just plays the lick and then Vinny just goes off and solos. Well, that's what I
1: noticed. Um, There was a, that same, uh, Headhunters tune we're talking about. There's a clip from last summer where Herbie Hancock was playing outside the Apple store in New York City out on the street. And they do that now. It's a different bass player. Um, and Vinny's doing some. It's a really nice clip because if you go check it out, um, I forget who the bass players, but the bass player is really great because he really just, like you said, he's just comping on that riff over and over, and Vinny's just doing this crazy stuff all outside. And his, I mean, he'll he'll break into like almost playing a hip hop beat over the top of the brakes, and then all of a sudden, dead space, nothing, and boom, he's right in. It's unbelievable yeah. how good it is. Yeah,
0: yeah, it is. It is good. It is good. All right, so let's go on to uh, to number two on your list. Um, you've got here Denny Carmassi, uh, and and uh, who you know has done a lot of stuff. He's he's best known for being uh, the drummer in Heart, but um, before that time, he was involved with Montrose, and you're saying that uh, his time in Montrose was really influential for you. Uh, talk about that for a sec.
1: Well, for some reason, well mo- that first Montrose album for a rock drummer, I think that's a rock drumming bible. It really has. All the pieces of what um, hard rock drumming I think is about. Along, you know, it's very John Bonham influenced, obviously, but he has a he has a lot of his own signature licks that he's kind of incorporated along his career. He played on the first. There was four Montrose albums, and Danny was the drummer on all of them.
0: Let's tell people a little bit who Montrose is in case they don't know. T- talk about the band Montrose because it, it's an influential band, but but maybe not so well known today.
1: Right, of course, because times there's a lot of distance between that. That came out in like '73 or '4. Yeah. Ralph Montrose was the one that played with Edgar Winter on Frankenstein and Free Ride. Uh, he's he was in the Edgar Winter group when uh-huh. Ed, that big hit Free Ride. I mean, uh, they were both big singles. Frankenstein, I think, is the only instrumental to ever be a number one hit on Billboard. And uh, so he was in the band on just the one album, and then he formed his own band. Before that, he had played as like a session guy with. Uh, was it was that Wild Nights and uh, uh, Van Morrison?
0: Oh yeah, he started wow. off
1: playing with Van Morrison, and then he ended up in Edgar Winter Group, and then he went solo, and he had the group Montrose for like four records, and then he had the group Gamma. Yes, which you mentioned so, you had seen, I think. And, saw them in
0: like yeah, very, very early eighties.
1: And, and Denny was the drummer, not on the first album. He joined on the second record. And he was the for the rest of Gamma's existence. And Rodney was a kind of Ronnie was a very diversified uh, guitar player. He
0: he Before did, we say that, who was the singer in Montrose? Sammy Hagar. Sammy Hagar, so yeah. For, I don't know if for you the mentioned first that. two records. For the first two records, yeah. yeah. So that's where Sammy Hagar got his start. Yeah,
1: Sammy started off there. So the group spawned uh some great musicians, obviously. And I think later on the one the bass player Name uh, Fitz, they call him. He uh, ended up being the keyboard player in Night Ranger for many years, and then the keyboard player in Van Halen for many many tours as well. The original, they got to play bass and modern, not the original, but from the second record on, that bass player evolved into being a keyboard player for, like I said, uh, Night Ranger and, and Van Halen. Um so a lot of times people forget where the uh, you know a lot of people that became known in other groups a lot of times they don't really know the history that they might have played with some known groups that they may have either heard or seen when they were younger just didn't make the connection you know nowadays because of the internet we can go and investigate people and check their histories and you know you know get a lot there's a lot more information out there to uh, if you if you want to be the historian type which I know you are
0: uh so, tell us now uh, again about sort of Danny Carmassi, like what his, his uh, what spoke to you, you know, listening to this record. Um,
1: I just thought, you know, Danny was a, a guy to play, you know, very bottom influence, played like a, a single kick, big 26, you know, big Ludwig kit with, I think, a 14 or 15, you know, rack tom and two floor times. He always played small setups, at least in those early years. And he just had a great hard rock style with a lot of, you know, cool licks. And he played very musical, I don't want to say busy. But he played a lot of stuff, but it was always within the context of fitting the music and the parts, I always thought. And uh, growing up in Cleveland, it seemed like every rock drummer in Cleveland pretty much will cite Danny Carmasi as one of their influences. So it must be because the band Montrose um, had such an impact maybe on Cleveland radio. We had a a radio station called WMMS, which was many years in a row in the 70s was voted the top radio station in the country. So that radio station was very influential back in the old days of uh, radio programmers and the whole payola system. Sometimes if you got one station to play a band's record, a lot of times the other radio stations would follow suit. And because WMMS had a lot of impact and influence around the country, not just in that area regionally, but the whole country, you know, um, that station was one of the first ones to – Play Bruce Springsteen and break him, and Rush, Kiss, uh, Montrose. A lot of these bands. ACDC. Many of the bands. If you uh, ask them, the, uh, who was the first or one of the first stations to promote your music and play you, they'll tell you WMMS in Cleveland.
0: That's cool. Well, that was like the the early days of FM rock, FM radio, which were you know so great as far as. Uh, it it being about individual disc jockeys who really were responsible for breaking uh, bands, not sort of record company necessarily, hammering.
1: And it was like, called it AOR, which meant album-oriented rock. And for example, we had a a disc jockey named Kid Leo, who works, I think, still for Epic or Capitol Records in New York City. He moved to New Hmm. York years ago. But he became a famous DJ, and he's the one that really played Bruce Springsteen ad nauseum. Uh, right out of the gate, and Bruce Springsteen, you know, really kind of broke out of WMMS in Cleveland because of that. And Kid Leo ended up getting a job in New York with a record label, I think, related because of his impact of really breaking Bruce among yeah. other bands. He was very—he was a very influential disc jockey.
0: It's interesting because if you if you uh, if you've seen the um, Beyond the Lighted Stage, the Rush documentary. Uh, there's a Midwestern station, they talked to those folks. I'm not sure, it might have been Detroit, because that's a little closer to Toronto, where they were from, but uh, I'm sure that your WMS was right in there with that.
1: Actually, I've, I've heard the one story, and they tell you it's it was, it was because of Cleveland.
0: That was w, Cleveland, the, it was Cleveland. The girl
1: disc jockey that played them, Yes. and everybody, when they played them, everybody thought it was a new Led Zeppelin song. When they, yeah. uh, because the first album of Rush is right. very much more like straight-ahead rock, they didn't have yeah. Neil Parrot yet. They had John Rutsey, the original yeah,
0: John Rutsey, yeah.
1: And he, they were much more straight-ahead rock band. They got Neil after that drummer left, and on Fly By Night, the second record, and Neil came in with all these crazy rock chops, and you know he and, be-
0: and crazy lyrics too. Yeah, you know, <laughs> he wrote
1: all lyrics, but he became an instant, you know, drum hero, and he kind of, in a way, stole the thunder from you know guys of that era, which was you know Carl Palmer was like the main guy for like a real mm. chops drummer and EOP was like mega band playing stadiums and giant, you know, 20,000 seat arenas at that point. Once yeah. Rush came along with Neil, Neil became at least in America, major drum hero.
0: I like to say that, uh, that essentially, uh, you know, in a way, John Bonham passed the torch, you know, when, when he passed away of, of, you know, sort of greatest drumming superhero, maybe John Bonham inherited from Ringo, you know, uh was sort of maybe who is the, the voice of that generation. Yeah. Uh, I definitely think Neil, you know, picked it up from from Bonham. I mean he took he took the maybe put a little more of a progressive attitude onto what Bonham was doing. Oh big time. um but it's it's interesting how that that evolution moves and and I mean you know and Pearts obviously
1: well, it's generational. I mean it's yeah. getting into these debates about I see you know, <laughs> you know Neil Burns better and John Bonham Yeah. Neil Peart was influenced by John Bonham. I mean, that doesn't mean that you can't take it to another place or in a different direction because that's right. your, your influences is like soup. You throw everything in the pot and then it becomes, you know, yeah. your soup is Daniel glass, you know? And that's the way I look at it. It's everybody throws it all in their own pot, and makes their own version of, of what they become as a drummer. But, um, I, it's just like sports, everybody wants to keep arguing about who's the best basketball player and I use that as an analogy because I'm a right. basketball fan, but it's generational, you know yeah, sure. right now everybody thinks LeBron James is the greatest player ever and for right now he is for this generation. But it's not fair to compare one to the other because each one is so impactful and influential to the people around them at a given time. And as we know, people like to revise history and look back and somehow people go to Mount Olympus status sometimes – It's always, unfortunately, after they're gone or after they're out of the scene. but um, And a lot of times, every generation wants to hold on to their stuff and go, well, the guys from my generation
0: (laughs) are never going to be beat by anybody. Yeah, yeah.
1: and it's the same thing in drumming and stuff. I mean, it's like I I see people arguing on a. a, – you'll see all these Buddy Rich clips and some kids will start arguing, yeah, Travis Barker is better or the guy from – the Reverend from Sevenfold. And I start going – okay, it's relative because you're 18 or 20 years old and that's your drum hero now, but it's kind of like not really fair to compare.
0: Yeah, no, it's a great, really great point. All right, moving on on our list, the next drummer is definitely one that I have a lot of uh, positive memories about myself, uh, uh, Tommy Aldridge, the great great Tommy Aldridge on uh, the Pat Tra- Travers uh, album, the live album, Go For What You Know. And I, And I have to say, when I was young, coming up, I was in maybe the seventh grade, eighth grade. I was in a band. I was kind of, it was a cool thing because I was in a band of all high school guys, which when you're in seventh and eighth grade being, you know, playing high school events and that kind of stuff was like, wow, it was a a big deal. And we played uh, a lot of the tunes from that record. Um, Boom, boom, out, go the lights, heat in the street, you know, and I did a lot of listening to that album and to Pat Travers in general at that time. And uh, the drumming's unreal. So give us your... uh, your thoughts.
1: Yeah. Well, before the album came out, I mean, it's funny. I had seen Tommy Aldridge on TV, like on Cal jam two with black Oak Arkansas when he had a Ludwig blue Vista light kit. And, but I wasn't really that familiar with, you know, I wasn't a big fan of, you know, um, I mean, I liked all rock music and all types of bands, anything that was rock. I liked it pretty much, but I wasn't like a super fan of black Oak other than when I saw him on TV, I didn't have the records, but, um, I saw Pat Travers. My brother actually gave me a Pat Travers album, and the first, or the well, not the first album, but the second two albums was Nico McBrain from Iron Maiden on those albums. I'm right,
0: them. right. There's actually some cool footage on YouTube of Nico McBrain playing with Pat Travers, yeah, a which is cool.
1: He's wearing a fedora. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nico, I think for me personally, that's my favorite drumming. I mean, everybody knows him from Iron Maiden, but Nico to me is best drumming is those records because Pat Travers was like a hard rock. Like I call it white funk. It was very syncopated, funky style music. Um, and Nico really had a great feel and swing, especially on the album. Um, on, I think it's putting straight. He's got a, you know, there's some, uh, even his drum sound is really good. It's more like a higher tuning, more like a jazz drumming tuning where you a lot of overtone on the toms and really crisp snare. And I, I thought he played great. So my brother brought those records home one day and I was like, oh, that got me into Pat Travers. So then he came to town and went to see him, not knowing Tommy Aldridge was the drummer. And all of a sudden I go to see him at the Cleveland Agora, which is a thousand seat club. And I'm like, you know, 10 feet from the stage and Tommy Aldridge is playing. And of course he blew my mind. I was like 18 and he had a, you know, he had a I remember like a platinum silver sonar double bass kit. And the thing I always remember, which I still do to this day, he had a cymbal coming straight out of each bass drum, straight up, which I love. <laughs>
0: That's um, cool.
1: And I still do that to this day. Um, and
0: uh, you how know, did he have the toms mounted or was it all mounted? Was it had, using two
1: two rack toms, but they were concert toms. The two rack toms were single headed. But his two floor toms were double headed, uh-huh. um, so he's one of the you know how the reason people give endorsements as you know is I went out I had a Toma kit which I had gotten because I had seen Billy Cobham you uh-huh. know years earlier but once I saw Tommy Aldridge I wanted a sonar kit and I ended up buying a sonar kit because of because of that so endorsements work
0: <laughs> you know, all these, <laughs> yes, tr- these drug
1: companies. It really does work because I'm a living proof of that. I mean, I bought a couple different kits when I was younger because of the influence of seeing certain drummers playing that brand. Absolutely.
0: And we all know, you know, when you ask somebody, uh, you know, anybody who knows anything about drumming, if you ask them about certain drummers, they'll be able to tell you what brand that drummer plays. Even if they don't play it or they don't buy it, they know it. You, so it's I, that, that, you know.
1: When you're... Impressionable and younger, no doubt. It's a it's the influence and the impact it has is uh, there's that's why we have endorsements. Let's just put yeah. it. Yeah, and there's a reason why companies do that.
0: Yeah. So was it the the classic Tommy like shirtless, giant curly hair head of hair flying, double bass? You know, just
1: yeah. I mean, he, but the thing is, he really. You know, obviously I had been influenced by Carmine Apiece and Cozy Powell and all the double bass drummers, Mitch Mitchell, Ainsley Dunbar. But what Tommy did with the feet, you know, was on a different level than those guys. He had obviously, you know, you can go back and listen to even all the uh, even Black Oak when he played that song up with the long drum solo. And he he just he's kind of always played that way. He obviously you could tell put a lot of time into learning how to incorporate his feet. And they, they were part of his arsenal of licks, using his hands and feet together in these different combinations. And he always did a lot of these. He always did that one figure, which I always thought was cool, where he played three uh, three beats with the feet and two on the hands. So it was a figure of five, but he did it in a circular way. So I call it like just what you do. Uh, I call rolling quads, where you're playing figures of four inside of a figure of three, basically. It's a rolling – you know, you're playing – Two hands, two feet, but you're playing it in a triplet feel or, or a more circular feel rather than square. And Tommy had a way of doing that, but he also did it with that figure of five, which I thought was cool. If you listen to the opening riff of the song Makes No Difference.
0: Oh, I love that too. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's, it's, a, it's basically a figure of five,
0: but ah.
1: in, in time, but he's playing in four, that opening riff. That's the perfect example of what he's doing with that figure. And yeah. I, it
0: makes no difference. It's great tune.
1: Yeah. And I just thought that the way he found a way to, you know, he had his bag of tricks and his set of licks and he, you know, no matter where Tommy's goes or whoever he plays with, he saw, he plays like Tommy Aldridge when you saw him with Ozzy, you know, Whitesnake, whatever, Gary Moore, there's a great album called live at the marquee and an album called dirty fingers that he's on with Gary Moore that he plays a lot of really cool stuff. So he was very, uh, Big impression and the whole idea of like, yeah, it's cool. You can play double bass. You know, you know, Louis Belson was the I think maybe one of the first ones I remember seeing it live as a kid. You know, but Louis never, you know, the way he did it was not in the same way of like the way some of the rock drummers have taken.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Louis Louis way of playing double bass is very triplet based because he was playing triplet based music. So his patterns are always like you know that kind of thing. And and then you know, rock drumming is more eighth or sixteenth note based um you know more sort of updated version of, of what louis was doing
1: i always go circular and round because interesting jazz drummers play where it feels circular feels like it's rolling round as opposed because think about it triplets are one it's very circular feeling like almost like uh like a, i always call it like a train mm. when a train's taking off the station at that you know uh, people always say you got to hear the train i mean buddy miles uh my friend used to play with me. He said, "Buddy, you'd always tell him, You got to hear it. You got to feel the train. Hear the train in your head. Feel that mo- perpetual motion of a locomotive.' You know."
0: Interesting that Buddy Miles had a band called the Buddy Miles Express.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you yeah. go. And I saw him. play, I did some gigs back in the '80s when I was playing with Gary Moore, and he was in Santana. He was the singer.
0: I saw that band two or three times when he was singing and, and playing killer lead guitar too, which always blew my mind. <laughs>
1: My buddy Derek uh, and Derek uh, is in a band called Sons of Apollo now, but Derek was in Dream Theater and a lot of other bands. We played right. together a couple of times in Alice Cooper and stuff, yeah. and he was in Buddy's band. That was his first tour. Wow. As a kid. He said it was. He, he says to me, he goes, Eric, Buddy had the best groove of any drum I've ever played with, and he he said when he laid it down, it was just yeah. like, bam. He said the power he had in that backbeat and his groove was yes. Unparalleled to the, to, at least to his experience.
0: Well, a lot of people don't know, but uh my favorite song on the Jimi Hendrix album, Electric Ladyland, which is "Rainy Day Dream Away," it, it's it's a shuffle and it's just it's it's Buddy Miles. It's not Mitch Mitchell. He's not on all of that record, and it's it's uh yeah, go go check it out. And it's like a sixteenth note shuffle. So instead of it being da 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 da, da it's like da, get that get that get that get that get that get that. Okay, and it is so far laid back. It's sick. It's just the greatest. I know. It's a it's a it's a killing killing groove. And that's but that's Buddy Miles. You know, so so sort of the beginning of the band of Gypsies, I guess. Period of Hendrix, he was moving into that. But okay.
1: Yeah, Buddy didn't have a. Um, he was more of a, you know had that funk and more about just playing the groove and the time as opposed to all the reckless abandon like chops that uh, Mitch Mitchell played more like you know almost like a. Uh, like bebop drummers playing all over the place and just playing through the time and all you know a more improvisational type approach. I thought.
0: Yeah, yeah. Also, if people want to check Buddy Miles. I really want to do something about Buddy Miles because he had such a diverse career and people don't really know that much about it. You know, they know about yeah. his affiliation with Jimi Hendrix, but not much. Maybe not so much else. Uh, his original project was a band called the Electric Flag, which was all of the uh, the Chicago blues guys. Uh, white Chicago blues guys, um, uh, from uh, 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 oh god, now I can't remember now their names are, are f- fleeing me. Um, but it was an integrated blues, Chicago blues, funk band essentially yeah. that came out of the whole chess record scene. Mike Bloomfield and um, uh, the other guy,
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm saying Michael Bloomfield, but uh, yeah, buddy. I never got to see him in that time. I, you know, Paul Stanley got to see, you know, uh-huh. Beatles and Hendrix and Electric yeah, Flag and yeah. all that stuff. So he grew up in that era like as a kid and saw all that stuff. And he said Electric Flag was great, like amazing.
0: Yeah, and Buddy sang he sang a lot. He was the singer in the electric flag. The other guys were instrumentalists. Very
1: young then. He was like seventeen or something like that.
0: Crazy. Like a kid. Yeah. 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 All right. Well good. Let's moving along. Um, number four on your list. Is uh, a name that we have mentioned, uh, Billy Cobham. And of course, you know, the spec- the fabled Spectrum album that uh, was so uh, so important in the evolution of, of jazz fusion uh, in, in general. When, when did you first get hip to that?
1: Well, I first heard him in, in Mobius New Orchestra. So yes. that kind of, you know, they kind of, I think, my favorite of all the bands of that uh, fusion is probably Return to Forever, myself
0: personally. I'm with you there. But yes,
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I love returning for. I mean, a lot of people like you know um, Weather Report, and there's a lot of other bands. You know, Tony Williams probably started it really though with in Lifetime and his earlier That's stuff. It's He's it's probably first. But and uh, all those drummers, you know, as you get older, you educate yourself. You go and kind of go. Well, I love Billy Cobham. Well, I didn't really know Tony Williams yet until I found out why Billy Cobham plays the way he does. Oh, it's because of that guy. So then, when you go back and discover. Every fusion drummer, it's really the evolution Come the the origin to me is it's Tony Williams. I mean, he's the guy that's changed the game and set the bar. Sometimes we don't discover until after the fact and proper credit is should be given. Yes.
0: And interestingly also, just on another side note, exactly what you're saying, uh, in in a more general sense, Tony came out of Miles Davis and the guys that started in Weather Report came out of Miles Davis. The guys that started Return to Forever came out of Miles Davis. Uh, the guys that started Mahavishnu came out of Miles Davis. So, I mean, fusion as a genre, you know, like really like ground zero of fusion, you can trace back to Miles, you know? So it's like, it's mind-blowing.
1: Would you say like what, bitch, Bitches Brew? Would you say it goes back?
0: Yeah, Bitches Brew, On the Corner, Jack Johnson. Uh, that's an incredible record. John McLaughlin, uh, you know, and and Billy Cobham are both on on that album. Uh, uh, Jack Johnson is just, it's, it's straight up a rock album. And yet, you know, it's jazzy and improvisational. Uh, it's, it's incredible. Um, so anyway, uh, yes, uh, yes on all of it. (laughs) Yeah, Billy's
1: album, um, you know, it was really Mahavishnu, but when he came out with Spectrum, um, because he had that elect, you know, Tommy Bolin on guitar, he had a real rock guitar player, you know, most fusion guitar players really didn't have the real, straight ahead, heavier rock side to him like Tommy Boland did. He was like the perfect meld of it all. And he was so influential that Jeff Beck switched into playing, you know, when he came out with blow by blow, he, he, that was directly because of Spectrum and Tommy Bowen, and which wow. was, and Spectrum was 73. Don't forget. Blow by blow came out in 75. Um, so he was, he was, he even has stated that was what a game changer for him. And Billy Cobham's, you know, like, he, that was another game-changer record, I think, to everybody. And if you were a rock guy, like, really loved rock drumming and stuff, Billy doing that, it was like, wow. It's like, that was, to me, the perfect statement of, like, here's the two styles together, you know? Yeah. And
0: the two styles being rock and jazz m- yeah. melded. Yeah.
1: I think that, that's a monumental fusion record, maybe one of the, the biggest of all. I mean, at least if you're a drummer, it has to be. Maybe not other, I don't know how the other instrumentalists or musicians look at that, but I know everybody knows that record pretty much from that era. Oh, yeah. I knew yeah, that record. Sure.
0: And that that whole um you know, I know you're you're a double bass guy and obviously that super up tempo, you know, you know, that kind of thing, that's There's definitely on, on on spectrum. Was that did that, you know, influence your, your thinking about double bass or were you already into double bass or um
1: uh, well a little bit. I actually didn't start playing double bass until I was eighteen because I had a single bass kit and just more straight ahead rock stuff. It's it's but it was that 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 type of records that made me want to play double bass more. I had obviously seen Louis Belson as a kid and that of course made you go, Oh, that's cool, you know, his setup looks so great and, and Louie was one of the obviously the pioneers of it. But seeing and hearing Billy Cobham, you know, I saw him on, I think, Midnight Special or something with Mike. Yes. You know, and he was like, you know, with that Clear Vibes kit. And you're like, wow. yes. It's like, you know, and his power, he was so, you know, the guy, the guy looked like a fullback with these giant biceps. And you're like, oh my God, yes. this guy looks like he should be playing with one of the NFL. And right. he, had, he had such power. When he would do a fullback, you know, he was just like ferocious. It's like, you know, you never seen it or heard anything like that.
0: Yeah, it really was physical. And, I think that's, you know, him and Tony both, uh, the way that they took jazz and just like put it on steroids, you know, and then their then their kits got bigger. You know, there's some cool early Tony Williams or uh, Billy Cobb stuff. Uh, I think he's playing with Joe Zawinul or somebody like that in a more kind of traditional sort of jazz setting. But definitely they they looked around at, at what was happening in the world of rock with guys like, you know, Carmine and John Bonham. Drums getting bigger. Everything's getting bigger. And they're like, well, let me integrate this, and yes. and it's not not what you would necessarily have thought. But the way that they did it, then it's like, wow, you know. It, really now, see,
1: I didn't understand uh, the Billy Cobham connection to Tony Williams initially until I went, you know, went backwards. And there's a great, uh, some great YouTube clips of um, Billy Cobham playing with Horace Silver. It's from like six, that's 60,
0: it, four 60, is silver,
1: and he's playing yes. a little four piece kit. Maybe yep. he's got the there, he's playing Miyazi Hollywood drums with the timpani four pedal tom tom. He's doing the timpani solo, but he's playing no. on a right handed setup kit. But he's playing open handed, yes,
0: finishing. yes. I think that's the first time I've ever seen a drummer or the earliest clip I've seen a drummer playing open handed lefty on a right kit.
1: But he's playing traditional, and he's you know, his he's playing it, you know, his right hand is holding it like you know, like Buddy Rich, but he's doing this way on the right-handed kid. On the, it's, oh, wow. it's, it's just totally unorthodox. And, but you clearly, that to me is the clip when you he's doing a solo, you go, now you'll see where he got the Tony Williams influence big time, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I was, we were talking before about Ronnie Machos, you know, Ronnie Machos played in one of the later seventies versions of Tony Williams lifetime. He played with Tony Williams, wow. like, Tony Williams, like you were saying, he kind of said, Hey, let's look what these rock guys are doing. Let me see if I can take some of that. Tony was always trying to work with rock guys because he liked the power, I think, and that kind of attitude of how what rock guys brought to his music. Um, and he had Montrose in his band at one point in the late 70s. But I remember Bob Daisley, a bass player, to play it on all the Ozzy records. All this and
0: stuff, yeah. Uh,
1: Bob was staying here. He was staying with me for a while in LA because we were good friends. And I remember Tony Williams called him up and wanted him to play with him. And the, it was at the old House of Blues on, on Hollywood. I'm sorry, on Sunset. And um, so Bob went and did like Tony did like a drum clinic and a kind of performance thing. And Bob was the bass player he wanted because Bob was a really uh, musical bass player. He was almost like like a heavy metal Paul McCartney, for lack of a better word. He had a lot of the huh. early guys like Jack Bruce and all those s- classic 60s, 70s, type guys in and playing so tony mm-hmm. obviously must have heard him somewhere and he asked him to come and play with him so i got to see that which most people don't even know that they ever played together and it was really cool because he would do um what was the beatles song he would do
0: come together i was there i was it was at what the was house there? of blues it yeah. was like a guitar center drum off thing wasn't it the early days something like that yeah but tony and tony and that, williams did a concert or was it was just tony williams clinic i was at that and i was going they're playing come together man that was with Bob Daisley.
1: Yeah, that was Bob Daisley on bass, and not many. That's you're the first person I met that we, that was there and knows that. And it was really cool the way I loved it, that Tony wanted to like you know he was like always a pioneer and a groundbreaker, and he always did stuff you know that I don't think people realize till later on like oh he's the reason why people do this stuff. He's always yeah. went out there and took those chances.
0: The other thing that really knocked me out about that day was that he began his clinic by just playing an open double stroke role. On his snare drum, yeah, for like five minutes, unapologetically, he just played an open, an open double stroke roll before he did anything else. You know, it was his opening solo, quote unquote. But it was so beautiful. <laughs> you know, it was. You
1: know who just did the same thing? I went and saw Steve Smith about oh, two weeks ago, and ah. I, went, I saw Simon last week too at the Catalina. Because I, I mean, to be honest with you, between you and I, Daniel, and I don't mean this in any way against any rock or pop band, but I've kind of gotten to the point now where. I really just kind of like when I go to see a band now, I just want to go watch jazz drummers and jazz musicians because it's like, it's such a pure art form that it's kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm just so tired of, I mean, I love playing rock music. Don't get me wrong. But when I listen, I want to, I want to either hear classical music or jazz. I want to see real artistic type uh, experiences where people are really playing improvisational, but mm-hmm. getting back to Steve mm-hmm. Smith started, yeah. he started the show with a double stroke roll, the same thing. Now I know where he got it.
0: Yeah, well, he's a, he's a Tony. You know, as as we know, Steve's a Tony Williams fanatic, and I don't know. You may or you not also know this as well. A few years ago, he started putting the black dot heads on top and bottom. He probably had that setup, which is a Tony thing. He he yeah. would put the the black dots on top and bottom of his drums started putting three floor toms down. You know, Steve Steve will get into something and he'll go all the way, you know, with that. And he definitely did that. And here's another interesting thing about Steve and what we've been talking about. Steve Smith played with Ronnie Montrose. Yes. And, and in fact, he was on... Uh, the way he got hooked up with Journey is that... Sorry, that's my phone ringing. Uh, he was on tour with Ronnie Montrose and they were opening for Journey. Now, this is obviously the very early days of Journey when Ainsley Dunbar was in the band, when, uh, you know, they were mostly a progressive rock band. People don't know that Journey started out as a really great instrumental progressive rock band. They made like three or four albums before Steve Perry came on board, and they actually had an official singer even. So, I Steve saw Smith the,
1: is... I saw the early band.
0: Okay. Oh, wow. Very cool. So, anyway, Steve is, is opening for them with Ronnie Montrose, playing very cool instrumental rock. And uh, through that, he got to know the guys in Journey, and that's how he ended up getting the gig.
1: It was—it was actually Ronnie had a record called "Open Fire," which was an instrumental record. Ah, because I bought the record, and the album—the drummer on the record is Alan Schwartzberg, who was a well-known studio guy back in the day. He played on like Alice Cooper goes to Hell or Welcome to My Name, or some of the stuff. He play, even played on some Kiss records, Alan Schwartzberg.
0: Wow, wow.
1: but he was a session guy. The, the album there's some cool drumming. The actual opening—the opening song called "Open Fire." It's um, there's a cool drum breakdown in the middle of it, which is really really cool that Alan does on it. So some some really good drumming, and Steve had been playing with Jean Luc Ponty I think before that.
0: Yes, Jean Luc Ponty. Oh, the record that he's on, I can't remember which record it is, is like one of my favorite Ponty records. Yeah. definitely go check the, the you listeners go check out Steve on with Jean Luc Ponty for sure. But you were you were saying?
1: So yeah, I had seen that's you know I knew the story about Steve. Being the in the opening band, and they just were thinking about making a change, and they're like, "Hey, what about th- We should get this this guy, this kid, or whatever." He was young, pretty young. And it's funny because at that that was must have been a unique time when all those guys went to Berkeley at the same time. Casey Sherrell, who had been he's on the live with McPanty album. I took lessons from Casey when I first moved to L.A. So um, all those guys: Vinnie, Jr. Robinson, Steve Smith, all of them went to Berkeley at the same time and knew each other as kids. It was pretty. You know, they they grew out of that fusion. They were influenced heavily by all that fusion stuff and that that was the heyday, that mid seventies time period when any of the you know, when you you'd go see Led's Up on one night of the week and you'd see Return to Forever next week or Stanley Clark or Billy Cobham, George Duke, whatever, you know, when we were kids we'd go see all the fusion bands just as much as the rock bands. And yeah. you know, we loved all kind of I don't see that kind of attitude anymore, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. It was, it was a very rich time, for sure. I mean, there was it was just a lot of, of open minds and uh, a, a very diverse spectrum of music available that was all considered mainstream, in a way. You know?
1: Absolutely. And, I mean, I was very fortunate. Cleveland was a great music town, and we had that club, the Cleveland Agora, which was a very iconic place and legendary. Um, and every Monday night, they'd always do Monday night at the Agora, and a lot of times it would be uh, what they call... Uh, Instant Radio Spectacular, simulcast on the radio on WMMS. But on Tuesday night was jazz night. And so they'd always have, you know, I'd go see a lot of bands on Tuesday. And mm-hmm. I, I, have a, I have a funny story. I'll just make it real quick. So we went to see John, I mean, uh, John McLaughlin with Shock T when he was doing with the hand oh. drummers. Yes. You know, me and my friends would always go, you know, we were pretty young. We were about, I don't know, 18, maybe 18, 19, 20, you know. So we'd, we'd always go early. And so we could be one of the first ones in to get always close to the stage. And on the jazz night, instead of it having standing room, they'd have it with tables, more How
0: like. Cool is that? Down. Yeah. So
1: we got right there and put the table right next to the stage. I mean, like, I mean, here's the stage, Daniel. We are our table is butted up to it. So McLaughlin yeah. comes out. Now, mind you, my friends are all thinking, "Oh, John McLaughlin." They're thinking Mahavishna and he's going to come out and blaze blazing. And he comes on yeah. on rugs.
0: And, right, they're sitting down.
1: And it was really cool, but it was not what my friends were all drunk and about. Uh-huh. And they're yeah. talking really loud. And John uh-huh. McLaughlin stops the show and tells them like to be <laughs> quiet. And I'm sitting there like this, you know, like
0: right, right, right. People, you know, pe- people don't may not know Shakti was a band. You know, John McLaughlin was very influenced by uh, Indian music and actually Indian spirituality. He, he, and Carlos Santana. Uh, had uh, 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 Sri Chinmoy was their Indian guru. And he took on, I think Carlos Santana's name was Devadip for a while. He You know, this was all during that and 73, Ar- 74 Ar- period. Ar- yeah, and Narada Michael Walden comes from the same same era, drummer. Anyway, Shakti was a band that John McLaughlin had with Indian musicians and he combined sort of Western music, Western rock or fusion with Indian stuff. But the drummer was al uh, one of the drummers in Shakti, who is Zakir Hussain's father, Zakir Hussain being now the greatest exponent of uh, of, of tabla drums uh, in the world. And a lot of people probably have heard of Zakir Hussain, but this was his father playing with John McLaughlin. So uh, hopefully uh, your friends recovered and you got to, to dig well, the rest of that show, because I had the Shakti record, which is really cool.
1: He actually stopped the show twice to tell them to shut up to be quiet and i'm sitting there like this you know, all embarrassed because i wasn't drinking i was always the designated driver i'm not saying i was a saint by any means but i was definitely the designated driver but i was embarrassed because i knew from going to see classical music and opera and stuff with my family as a kid that there's certain types of music that you shut up and listen and pay attention Right. And this was one of them. And these guys didn't, you know, they're all high and drunk and obnoxious. And But I'll never forget it because it was very embarrassing that he, like, literally stopped in and, and had to single us out. And we right. were really at the front of the right in front of him. I mean, he was, like, five feet from me.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I, I have a feeling that uh, on the Shakti tour or, you know, that he probably had to do that a lot because a lot of the fan base showed up expecting really loud, raucous music, you know. Right.
1: I think so. I had to switch because my battery was going dead, so now I had to get move into the kitchen to put it. No up. sweat. So you see my.
0: Yeah. So your so your last selection, and this has been a really great uh, hang, Eric, and I really hope that uh, that the listeners have followed us down the many highways and byways that we've gone on. But that's kind of the idea here: is to just start with whatever we start with and and talk about music and drumming, you know and. Uh, Great stuff. So the the last uh, name you have on your list is another one people will be familiar with, um, Simon Phillips. But again, like so many of the other guys we've talked about, Tommy Aldridge and Billy Cobham, like, you know, huge, huge long career worthy of an entire podcast in itself. Yeah. So um, you know, you, you mentioned, you said anything, especially Michael Schenker's first record. And I think, again, a lot of people may not know who michael Schenker is or what his influence was um he was in the band ufo right
1: yes and, or, and scorpions a little he started off at scorpions but he's right. mostly known for ufo and his and his solo band michael Schenker group um which cozy powell um ended up being the drummer for a while after simon simon did well t- simon did the first record but cozy powell became the drummer so simon did when he did the first solo record he basically enlisted Moe Foster. It's, it's interesting because it's the same rhythm section that ended up on Jeff Beck there and back. Mo Foster on bass, Simon on drums, um, wow. which that's a killer rhythm section. And, but the great thing is they brought this kind of fusion jazz rock thing to this hard rock guitar player. And Simon, you know, if, if you want to hear some like great rock drumming, that's really musical, but with a lot of cool chops. That's why, I, you know, I always loved Simon's drumming. I mean, I loved him on Stanley Clark's school days. <clears throat> um, he's, people don't know, he played on Judas Priest's Sin After Sin album, which is some, I mean, he's like 19 years old on that. He's like, it's great, 801 Live, which was a cool band, kind of a fusion thing. Are you familiar with them? 801? No,
0: I'm not. I'm not.
1: That was with I Brian Eno and Phil Manzanero from Roxy Music. And, um, wow. Wow. Yeah, check it out. It's a live album. They only did a live album. It's called 801 Live is the name of the band,
0: 801. Definitely checking that out.
1: Really cool. But um, I was familiar with Simon right early, at an early age. And uh, so I always would follow his career. And I loved the fact that he was a guy that really could play you know, jazz and fusion rock stuff as well as great hard rock drumming. But he was always so musical. I mean, most people probably know him from playing with uh, The Who. I know he played on, I think, a big country record. You know, he's done a lot of stuff. His...
0: Is. a lot of studios. I've played with Pete Townsend too. A lot of those great Pete Townsend records. Simon is on those. Uh, that was sort of his introduction to that whole world of the who and, and empty glass is just one of my favorite collection of like incredibly smart pop drumming. Give blood, in my opinion, one of the greatest drum tracks ever.
1: But, if you want to hear like some, you know, Simon Moore like playing like, like the like his the reason I like Simon because right away I could hear in his playing. As soon as I heard him, I'm going, oh, this guy's like a more rock pop version of a Buddy Rick – I mean, of a uh, Billy Cobb. He totally had the double bass thing. He even set up, played left, open handed, left hand lead. I mean, totally a lot of Billy Cobham licks. And uh, if you listen to Space Boogie on Jeff Beck There and Back, I mean Simon wrote that piece. It's in seven. It's a shuffle, really fast, great double bass shuffle with all these cool ghosty notes stuff. And that's like the prototypical tip of the hat to Billy Cobham, Simon Phillips track. You know, if you want to see where he got his influence, go back and listen to Stratus or Quadrant Four like Billy Cobham. Um, I think it's Quadrant Four that's got the fast double bass shuffle.
0: Yes, Quadrant on, Four. On
1: Spectrum, Quadrant Four. But basically what um, Simon took that kind of groove and that approach and did it in seven with Jeff Beck, and it's just great.
0: Super hip, yeah.
1: Oh, it's great. I mean, it's it's a pretty tricky beat to play, too. I mean, I've broken it down and learned how to play, but I can't play it like Simon, Um, so I'm not going to pretend I can. But, you know, Simon had such an impact on me because of the whole Billy Cobham thing, and I thought, wow, here's a cool... And he's, like, only a year or two older than me, so I was thinking, wow, here's a guy that's, like, my age, and he's a rock drummer, but he's really taking those cool influences that I like, and he's really creating his own thing with it, which I was so impressed with. So he had a big, uh, you know, I just saw him last week. It was, I think it was his birthday as well. The day I saw him at the Catalina Bar and Grill here in LA, he played two nights and with his band, uh, he has a
0: new, a new album out, right? The band or, that he's touring with. Yeah. A
1: protocol called uh, Protocol Four, I guess the name of the album. Right. Um, but he had a really great band and he, you know, he, he, he was, you know, he has the wow factor which is what I, you know, he's the kind of guy you walk away kind of going, yeah, that's, you know, that's something to aspire to or just be. I don't look at it as a competition. I just walk away being inspired musically and going, wow, that was like a great drum lesson, a great musical lesson. And it was just a nice experience hearing some great musicians play. Like when I saw Steve Smith, Vital Information, the week before. Yeah, I really liked what um, Steve did because Steve's a little bit more towards, I'd say, more jazz purist if you will um mm. out of his compositions i think are more um he, he showed more of a uh, you know he did some really cool stuff um with brushes and with um mallets and i mean simon did a little bit mallet stuff too but i thought i liked steve's uh, overall sound of his band was a little bit more slightly older school
0: yeah it's funny that the two the two drummers you just mentioned simon phillips and steve smith are the two drummers that play with hiromi You know, who's uh, this just incredible uh, female Japanese piano player, uh, Anthony Jackson on bass. And when Simon can't do the gig, Steve does the gig. And in a lot of ways, they come from the same school, you know, sort of Cobham inspired, but also, you know, I I think Simon is very similar in in background to you. He grew up uh, in a, I think his father also had a big band. Yes. Uh, He grew up playing big band jazz. And so... Yeah, it's funny, you know, just looking back now that we've talked about all these different drummers, you can really see the two sides of Eric Singer that you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, you know, that one foot in a more traditional evolutionary path, understanding, and appreciating earlier styles of music, and then seeing how those have evolved and your love of rock music, you know, really come together and that's what you're into. That's, you know, and that, that that's who you listed, whether you thought about it or not. It's, it, you know, from an outside perspective, it's, you can see exactly that, which is great.
1: Well, probably more of the drummers I like have, you know, aside from, I mean, I love John Bonham. I mean, you know, today you said list five. And like I mentioned to you earlier, if you ask me, I'm going to come up with a. You know, at first I was trying to think like, what albums really impacted me? And I always think like, you know, one of them I was going to mention was like the first Tubes album with Prairie Prince. Because I think the way Prairie plays in that is very similar to a Simon Phillips, uh, Steve Smith type approach. He's, you know, Ainsley Dunbar. They all kind of had that very similar jazz rock influence into their playing. So I've always appreciated guys that had that kind of influence, but did it in rock. Because to me, that's I gravitate more towards that style of music. But I still... Always love, you know, my favorite overall music of all If you would have to be like, you know, seeing big band drummers because it's the power of seeing seeing a drummer drive a big band is, I tell people, if you haven't experienced it, it's not like anything you've ever heard. And you have to be in the room. You can't put, it's not dropping a needle yeah. on YouTube. You've got yeah. to be in the room and see the power of like a 15 piece, piece band with horns and watching Buddy Rich, you know. And feeling his power come off the stage, you're like, "Oh my God! It was it's it's not like anything you've ever seen or heard before until you're in yeah. the room."
0: It's it's very exciting. Having done you know tour several tours of duty with the Brian Setzer Orchestra, just in terms of sheer power, kind of a scene. Yeah, and exactly. of course you know World Crown Review and everything. It's and I've it's it's really fun. It's great.
1: But yeah, I mean, I lo- that's why I've I've seen Brian Setzer Big Band many times, and you know I I love what he does because he takes a little bit of you know some Uh, You know, there's a little rockabilly stuff and and 50s rock and roll incorporated into it, but he does it in his unique way. But it still has that power of a big band. And, you know, I don't I'm not sure there's anybody that's found the way to meld those things in a way that he's done it in a unique, very entertaining way. I think yeah,
0: it's no, it's Rose. it is. It conceptually, it's 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 pretty genius, and uh, and
1: he's a great guitar player. I mean,
0: and and what's cool is it, it it you know playing in it. It's a really great combination of all those roots grooves, but at the same time, there's a lot of big band stuff going on that you got to catch. You know, so it's sort of it's it it pulls from those two different yeah realms.
1: In fact, um, my dad had – when my dad – when we moved him out of his house you know, to go and assisted living many years ago, I took some of – I had a, uh, a suitcase full of small charts, and then um, I gave them to Brian. He came to one of the KISS shows in, I think, St. Paul, Minneapolis, and I said, Brian, you know – I was going to give them to you, Richie, and Danny – I remember Danny said, you should give them to Brian – I should have given them to Daniel. Well,
0: <laughs> it's all right.
1: I already had given them to Brian – at, at the time, because I thought, well, this guy's doing Big Ben. Maybe he'll appreciate it. I think he told me he did end up using one of those charts huh. at some point. I don't remember exactly yeah. which song. But yeah. I wanted them to go to somebody I thought would be like, hey, that they're into this music. And rather than because what do most people do when they clean out a garage or an attic? They throw them away. Yeah, right. I didn't want them to be thrown away. I thought they've got to be passed on to somebody that keeps burning the, you know, bearing the torch for this
0: stuff. Great! And I, well, you're one of them, you know. So, well, thanks, man. I mean, that's that's really cool. And uh, let's uh, let's leave it there for today, uh, Eric Singer. Thank you so so much for having a chat with me. It's been a pleasure.
1: You know, Daniel, I'm just thinking as we, earlier when you're saying, I'm going to call. You know, what do you call it? Pick five, top five, or whatever. But I was going to say you should call it take five, like because take Dave five Rupert, on the Dave Rupert. <laughs>
0: great idea great idea and uh, maybe we'll have to go with that
1: your take on your top five and there's no pun intended or actually pun intended
0: pun intended exactly all right man great. well thanks for taking five with me and uh i'm sure i'll be talking to you soon thanks daniel all right man take care <laughs> well that was pretty cool hope you enjoyed the conversation with eric singer It was a really fun romp. We covered a lot of ground. And uh, please do, again, send me your feedback. Did you enjoy this kind of a format? Did you find this instructive? Was this too weird for you? Was it boring? Did it not hit the mark? Uh, Or did you love it? Let me know one way or the other. Of course, you can always reach me through Drummer's Resource. You can leave a comment on the actual podcast. You can write to me on my Facebook page, Daniel Glass Drummer Author Educator. You can send me an email. Uh, there's any number of ways to reach me. I would also like to mention once again that registration for the 2018 Daniel Glass New York Jazz Intensive is now open. If you go to danielglass.com, there is the uh, clinics slash intensive uh, (laughs) podcast, clinics slash intensive tab in the main menu, and you can click on that. There's a cool video that just went up, you can see all the testimonials from last year's students and see what we get up to. It's a really fun and intense four days uh, here in New York City. Jazz Capital of the World will be at the Collective. Hopefully we'll be in their brand new facility by this point. Incredible state-of-the-art facilities. And we'll spend four days living, eating, and breathing jazz. Four days and nights. These are long days. When I say intensive, I mean intensive. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. And I will see you next week with another episode of The Daniel Glass Show right here on Drummer's Resource.